Welcome to Trade Policy Decoded, a podcast that shines a light on what's happening in trade policy in Australia and around the world. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade and the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment. Your hosts are Professor Peter Draper and Dr. Prue Gordon. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Prue. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. And it's great to be back with you recording episode four of Trade Policy Decoded. This week, we're going to look at the European Union-Australia trade relationship more broadly and burrow down a bit into the current free trade agreement negotiations that Australia is negotiating with the EU. But of course, you have some deep, in my opinion, expertise on the European Union. So I just thought you might like to kick us off and give us a bit of background to, to the relationship. Great. Well, thanks very much, Brew, and flattery will get you everywhere. I thought I'd talk about two things quickly. So the first is, well, two drivers of change in the medium to long-term EU trade policy framing. So the first is geopolitics and the second is values, which we spoke about a bit last time we, we met. So on the geopolitics front, the EU and the European member states, like the rest of us, are really responding to three sets, big sets of changes. Um, the first is the increasingly inward evolution of the United States as the Europeans' key strategic partner, as they are, of course, for us in Australia. And the election of Donald Trump in 2016, coming into office in 2017, really cemented that for them, and it took them by surprise, as it did many people across the, the world. But Donald Trump called into question all the security arrangements, and that really got the Europeans thinking, and in a sense, reflecting on long-standing French positions that they need to be more autonomous in the world, that they can't rely on the US forever. And then that speaks to the second big change, relatively recent, of course, and that's Russia and the Russia-Ukraine war right on their doorstep. And that's really reinforced the need for Europe to be, as Ursula von der Leyen put it in her coming out speech when she was first elected as commissioner, to be a geopolitical power in the world, so not just an economic power. And we've seen a lot of movement in that direction from sanctions to beefing up military capacities, at least rhetorically. Uh, and then, of course, China. And the Europeans have come to this relatively late. And in that sense, they're following Australia, but have a lot in common observing the Australia-China trade relationship very closely. And so they're recalibrating their trade policies to take account of all these things. That's captured in a phrase that they use of open strategic autonomy, which some think is an oxymoron. How can you be autonomous but open at the same time? And that plays out differently in different areas. But what it really means is they're looking for new friends in the world. They want to diversify their trading relationships particularly, and particularly in key strategic areas, such as, and we'll talk about this more later, uh, the search for critical minerals, amongst other things. And in that context, Australia really moves into the frame. And a trade agreement could be a particularly useful instrument to cement that relationship. And then the second area, which we've already been speaking about a bit, is their values drive 
And a lot of that devolves around notions of sustainability. So environment, human rights, labor standards, all of these things. Most of the impulses we've seen coming out of Europe have been unilateral. Uh, and I think that is their default preference. But there are also being expressed in free trade agreements. And so sustainability chapters and trade agreements as a particular example. The underlying driver of that, though, I think is what I would call, what the Europeans would call a level playing field agenda, which means we're raising the bar on standards, be it environment, human rights, labor, that imposes some competitive costs on our companies. So we want to level the playing field, be it through FTAs or unilaterally, such as a carbon border adjustment mechanism, for instance. Uh, and that obviously creates tensions with the openness framing of open strategic autonomy, and it creates tensions when it comes to seeking market access. So the Europeans are raising the bar, they're looking for much more. Some countries are not prepared to give what they want in the context of a free trade agreement. But when it comes to Australia, at least we can all agree that we all want to promote the rules-based international order. And we probably have more in common when it comes to the values framing than there are divergences. And we certainly have the resource dependencies in common as well. But when it comes to the level playing field, let's not talk about agriculture, of course. And I'm sure you're going to have more to say about that shortly. Absolutely. That's such a beautiful snapshot of the complexity that is the European Union and yes most issues are highly complex but the European Union is such an amalgam of different cultures and countries and regulatory systems the fact that they've been able to come together and continue to work as this whole despite Brexit other than Brexit really is such a credit to the Europeans who are involved in this amazing project but yes the complexities of the current geostrategic situation that Europeans and all of us really in the world face. The European Union have really done an amazing job of coming up with a really nuanced approach to trying to address this array of challenges facing them and all of us. But if we get into the specifics of the free trade agreement as one expression of how they are managing these broader strategic challenges, the free trade agreement is really a reflection of how the European Union is approaching these broader strategic challenges. But then also it's addressing some of the old issues that have been a feature of Australia's trade relationship with Europe for a very long time. So yes, that's where we do get to this issue of agriculture, which has been a very long-standing tension in the trade relationship. And I think it's one of the reasons why it took so long for Australia and the European Union to sit down and actually agree to launch trade negotiations. For those who don't know the history of the Australia-EU agricultural trade relationship, European Union, as Peter knows very well, maintains the common agricultural policy, which provides a number of subsidies and supports to the agricultural sector in Europe. For, there are a number of reasons why they maintain the common agricultural policy, principally to ensure food security. It grew out of the Europeans' experience of the Second World War, but also more recently issues around the environment and maintaining particular environmental processes and standards have also fed into 
today's version of the common agricultural policy. Now, of course, Australia is a big exporter of agricultural products. So having the European Union maintain highly protectionist policies is really antithetical to what Australia sees as an important way of maintaining food security, and that is open markets that fundamentally underpin the flow of food around the world. So we philosophically, Australia and the European Union have different points of view on agricultural policy. I guess the key issue for Australia, which is, is not an issue now, was the Europeans' practice of subsidising exports. So that meant they weren't just protecting their own market. It meant a number of the markets that Australia would export into were being undermined by cheaper European subsidised product. So the WTO in Nairobi, I think it was in 2017, agreed finally after many, many years of negotiation to ban the use of agricultural export subsidies. So we're not supposed to see that in global trading or whether we do or not. I think that's topic of another podcast. So agriculture has always been a really hot topic in the Australia-EU relationship. And as I said, it's one of the reasons why it took so long for us to agree to negotiate an FTA with the European Union. And to be fair, after many years of negotiations on this FTA, agriculture remains a key sticking point as to why the FTA hasn't been concluded. Another issue that's that's appeared in the media, which is causing tensions and holding up conclusion of the FTA is this whole issue around pricing of critical minerals and minerals required for a lot of green technologies. So the issue I understand as portrayed in the press is that the European Union have asked Australia not to introduce any sort of dual pricing for these critical minerals that would differentiate between the prices paid by Australian domestic producers and the prices they charge for foreign customers. I think the concern was when the current Australian government introduced the gas dual pricing arrangement, the sense is that that could potentially be a policy that they also apply to these really critical minerals and critical inputs to green technology. So the FTA is a comprehensive trade agreement it includes everything any of our trade agreements have included before, but it has some additional chapters on issues such as extensive gender provisions, as I understand, and environment provisions and labour provisions. But that, that's sort of where we're going with trade agreements. These days, following our podcast last week on IPEF, that's very much where trade agreements are going. So it's sort of a trade agreement for the times. We haven't concluded yet. And there was, um, as you'd know better than anyone, Peter, we've got European Union elections coming up and some are saying that that's going to be a, that's a key point in terms of whether we're going to be able to conclude the agreement this year or not. Yeah, that's right. So those politics are complicated, but maybe before we get onto them, just a couple of observations on, on, on what you have just set out. So that issue of agriculture for the Europeans also goes to their values framings, at least in some senses, because it's a complex political economy. I clearly recall then European Trade Commissioner Pascal Lamy, who went on to become Director General of the WTO. Uh, so this was back when the Doha round was being launched. 
well, before the launch of the Doha round, really, he spoke about European agriculture as being, and the subsidies, as being integral to European values. And what he said is that agriculture plays a multifunctional role. From whence came the idea of multifunctionality? So not the European Union, but it's a good image. Let's go with it. Think of your Swiss cow and your Swiss village with the bell around its neck. And I recently, as you know, I was in Geneva. I transited through Zurich and there's this little train that goes between the terminals. It's a, an underground train. And they always play this video as you go along that train. And it's a video of almost Heidi, if you like, if you remember the, the cartoon mm -hmm. character, but the Swiss I guess, story about Heidi and her adventures that she got up to in the Swiss mountains. And there she is with the Swiss cow and the milk pail and all of that. And it, this really speaks to the European psyche. So French farmers particularly keen on their multifunctionality, the small plot of the vineyard, you know, et cetera. Um, so they do hold this pretty dear. And then that's expanded into other areas not just subsidies and to geographic indications. As we know, well, this has been a big issue in the negotiations. Uh, so I'm based in South Australia. We know all about Prosecco, for instance, as a name that might be taken away. But there are others, uh, and particularly food geographic indications that are in play as well. Possibly a little bit oversold because it probably boils down to about 10 GIs or so. But for those 10 producers, this is a big deal. And if you are an Italian expat in Australia, for instance, clinging to your Parma ham, if that's the GI on the table, this is a big issue for you because you have a cultural connection to Italy, but you also are invested in a business sense in the production of that, that product. You'll have to change the name and invest in the marketing, et cetera, et cetera. It's also an op opportunity to take Australian names, indigenous names particularly, to the global stage. So it's a complex issue. And that, that's been one of the other big sticking points in, in the negotiations. And the, and the real tragedy, I think, is that it, important as agriculture is to Australian stakeholders, the fact that the Europeans are not prepared to do much on agriculture means other areas of the negotiation that hold significant economic interest for Australian exporters and investors, and I think particularly of the services area, they're held hostage uh, by this, this snafu. <laughs> so hopefully, and we've got till the end of the year largely to sort this out, hopefully the negotiators will be able to sort it out. And I guess the real underlying question for Australian negotiators is how much additional market access will be enough to seal the deal for the Australian farming community and how that plays out in terms of domestic politics, which you might want to comment on as well. That's a complicated calculation for Australia to make, I think. Yes, yeah, so you're right. Just going back to that issue around geographical indications, I mean, domestically within Europe, that's a fascinating policy tool because in part, Australia, I mean, it's fascinating that Australia's even got to this point of in considering the introduction of a geographical indication system for food. Obviously, we've got one for wine and spirits, which came about as a result of GATT agreements, WTO negotiations. But the fact Australia for so long opposed the introduction and the spread of the geographical indication systems globally and really was opposed to the European Union. So the fact that Europeans have got us to this point where we're even considering introducing 
a GI system here is is mind-boggling. I mean, something you wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago at all. But also when you look at the role of GIs as a policy tool within Europe and how they act to reassure European farmers that their products are going to be protected, as sort of, as you'd hope, as a trade-off for them opening up in other areas of agriculture, I think it's been relatively effective in achieving that outcome just providing them with those reassurances. So yes, it's going to be interesting to see where we land on GIs. You're absolutely right. There'll be specific products that are impacted should we go down that path. But at the same time, there have been some Australian industries who've recognised opportunities. Um, in terms of the domestic politics of concluding an FTA within Australia, I mean, it's always is something better than nothing. And how much is that something Farmers are always, we, we really would love, I mean, farmers in Australia would love open markets, would like to be able to access the European Union without any barriers at all, in the same way Europeans access the Australian market. That said, we have very significant biosecurity requirements that importers of agricultural product to Australia need to meet. But it was always expected that, that we would never get that in the FTA with the European Union. So the question then becomes, is something better than nothing. And if you look at the history of the conclusion of past negotiations, that's always where we've been. It's what farmers have had to agree that something is better than nothing, even if it if it's only a minuscule increase to current access. Yeah, I think that's right. And it also comes down to an important question for Australia, which is in light of our well, the problems in our bilateral trade relationship with China, how much do we need the European market, which is a significant market, going forward? And, and what do we have to trade off to get that access? And is that bargain worth having at the end of the day? So it's, it's also complicated for the Australian negotiators and domestic constituencies, for sure. All of this assumes, of course, we'll get to a deal, uh, and it is delicately poised. I think that's clear. So, so maybe just on that that timeline. So the key date is June 2024, because in June 2024, the EU Parliament elections take place. The new Parliament will come into place pretty soon after that. But basically, from the end of this year, everybody returns home and goes to politicking and preparation for that elections cycle. Now, the reason the parliament matters so much is because it has to sign off on the eventual treaty. So the composition of the parliament and the balance of political forces and how they are disposed to a trade deal and, say, granting more agricultural market access to Australia is a very important question. But also the European commissioners, well, the commission as a whole, but the commissioners are elected, uh, and certainly the commission president is elected by the parliament. And so when the parliament changes, the commission changes too. Now, under Ursula von der Leyen, you've had a commission president who's been very engaged in the geopolitical debate and space. For her, trade agreements uh, are a key instrument in making Europe that geopolitical power that she wants the EU to become. A new commission president would come and potentially with a new agenda, and that would speak to where the European, broadly speaking, 
political center of gravity is moving. Now, what do we know? And, and by the way, that also affects the council. So the way the EU institutions work, the legislation is passed through what is called a trilogue process. That's what they call it. So three key institutions co-determine legislation. So that's the parliament, the council, which represents the heads of state, and the commission, which then proposes legislation. Uh, so all three matter. Now, as elections take place in individual European states, and we've seen a few just in recent weeks, the composition of the council changes as well. And so it reflects the overall political balance in Europe. So what are we seeing? I think generally speaking, what we're seeing in European politics is a rightward shift in EU politics. So for instance, in Slovakia, which just had elections, they elected what the media is portraying as a pro-Russian president. Now, if you add that together with Hungary's Viktor Orban, who's been the traditional spoiler and, in a sense, the Russian Trojan horse inside the European Union, then the politics around Ukraine and Russia become much more complicated, obviously. Recently, we had local government elections in Germany, and the big winner, everybody agrees, was the far-right party, the, the AFD, and they made gains in West Germany as well. Traditionally, they're strong in the east of Germany. So what are the issues? And by the way, there's key elections coming up in Poland this weekend. Now, in Poland, there's already a centre-right government, and it's possible that, that a more centrist government would be elected. And Poland, Poland matters hugely because of that Ukraine issue in the context of Polish politics, but European politics more, more broadly. So what's driving this rightward shift? It's really three things. It's immigration, uh, which is a huge issue in the European context for all the reasons I think we all know quite well. But the second issue is Russia and the long-term response to, to Russia. But the third issue, very interestingly, is a backlash against sustainability policies and particularly the environmental aspect. And we saw this most interestingly expressed actually not in an EU member state, but in the United Kingdom, where Rishi Sunak has rolled back a number of sustainability policies in recent weeks, precisely because he thinks this will get him re-elected. He thinks it appeals to the popular vote. But we're seeing that kind of political backlash happening in other European member states as well. So those European values are not fixed necessarily. Uh, there's an oscillation taking place. And ultimately, this will affect the future conduct of domestic legislation, so EU legislation, but also stances taken in free trade agreements. And in some ways, in ways that may favour Australian interests, but we'll have to see, because the more nationalistic Europe becomes, the more rooted in, to some extent, farmer interests and politics Europe becomes, that might be bad for Australia. So it's, it's complex. So it raises the question, so even if we conclude the FTA, whether it's able to be ratified, and I think of the Canada-EU FTA agreement and how the Wallonians were able to hold up that agreement. There's just so much still to, to get through, so many hurdles to overcome before we see the light of day. Europe is just an infinitely complex place. I have great admiration for the fact that you spend so much time understanding its institutions and as I said before, I, I do have great admiration for the whole project, but it baffles me how it continues. 
<laughs> I think the Europeans find it baffling. So we're, we're not alone in that respect. <laughs> so on that note, Peter, I thank you so much. Again, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to talking to you next week about the Australia Centre for International Trade and Investment Conference. Yes, I'm greatly looking forward to that, Prue. You've assembled a fantastic group of people. Uh, it's going to be, I think, the Australian Trade Conference to be at, for sure. Uh, and I'm looking forward to some great conversations. As am I. Thank you so much. See you soon. All righty. See you soon. Thank you for joining us for Trade Policy Decoded. Check out the Institute for International Trade and Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment websites for the recordings of all podcasts and to see what's coming up.